Our Father, we do ask this morning. We ask for understanding. We ask for our minds and hearts to be open to the word. We seek you as well this morning, Father, and we praise you for that passage of Scripture that assures us that those who seek will find. And so in Jesus' name, let us be seekers this morning of the deep things of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sit down. We're going to open this morning to the book of Romans once again. We've been in a series on the book of Romans. And we started in chapter 1 a year ago, January 2nd. So we're going on two years. Just keep in mind, Martin Lloyd-Jones did this back in the 50s and 60s. It took him 13 years. I'm not going to take that long. But I'm not going to do as good a job as he did either. But I'll do my best by the strength of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to ask you to open the book of Romans this morning, chapter 13. We've just gone through chapter 12. There were some other remarks I would have liked to have made, but I thought we would progress on to chapter 13. I'm debating whether as the text, I read the whole chapter, I think I probably should, so we can familiarize ourselves with it. That's the thing, when you're in a series, it's nice to know where you're going. You're not just stuck in one passage, it relates to and interrelates to the other passages. So I'll read Romans chapter 13 for you this morning. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. They are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. 
The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Father, let us incorporate into our walk with God these statutes and laws and commandments that you put before us even this day as we preach and proclaim them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul, it seems, has taken a a turn in chapter 13, but maybe not quite so sharp a turn as some might think. Verse 1, let every soul be subject to governing authorities. Why did he have to go and say that? I was having a lot of fun hating government authorities. And so were you. I was having a real good time being cynical about them, disagreeing with them, showing to everyone how foolish they are. And then he has to go and say this. And as a Christian, as a born-again believer with the Holy Spirit in my heart, all I can do is repent. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. By the way, I'm going to get into this as we go into this over the weeks. And be subject to doesn't mean agree with. Right? It's kind of like wives submit to your husband. And they say, well, I submit most of the time. Well, when don't you? When I disagree. That's the only time submission is submission. The rest of the time, you're just in agreement. It's the same with governing authorities. He goes on, there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. I hope everyone already knew that. God is sovereign, right? But forgetting for the moment chapter designations, chapter 13, right? And recognizing that such distinctions are artificial, you know that the chapters and verses are added too. That's that's man's ingenuity. You know that, right? In fact, they're mostly attributed to a Frenchman, a Parisian printer named Stephanus, Robert Stephanus. In 1551, he printed a version of the Bible where he put the chapters and verses in. And there are places in the Bible where you would swear as he went along on his horse and he's putting the chapters in that the horse tripped and he made the wrong notation. Because it would seem sometimes that the chapter shouldn't have changed or maybe should have changed in another place. And some think this is one of those places. All right? So it's been suggested by some commentators, um, it's been suggested that Paul changed his subject matter abruptly from chapter 12. But I think, see, this is the value of a, of a series. We can go in and look at these things interconnected as though the chapters and verse designations don't exist. And we can see, did he really change so much? And so if you look at your notes, I included this for you here uh, in the second paragraph of, uh, of page two there. Um, I'm going to read to you several verses from the last chapter and, and then a few from this to try to see if we can what the connectivity is here and why Paul suddenly started talking about government when he was talking about the church and the brethren. And so he wrote, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Did you know that? 
Christians cannot be vengeful. We can't take vengeance on someone. We have to take it and wear it, the offense. We don't get to kill guys. Rather, give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So the Lord keeps that prerogative for himself. The Lord takes vengeance. We don't. Therefore, if your enemy hungers, feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink, for in so doing, you'll heap coals of fire upon his head. That's from the Proverbs, right? Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. I think that went along kind of logically and expectedly. Don't take vengeance yourself. That office is referred to some other authority than you. It's a natural progression into man's relationship to the state. Paul has just given us a lengthy treatment of man's relationship to each other, to the brethren. So if we take the interlocking sections of the epistle as they are, we may find that Paul moved rather logically from one place to the next in his epistle. Without the abrupt change of chapters, we find that Paul is teaching a prolonged lesson on relationships between people and agencies of people, right? So he's just finished a lesson on interpersonal relationships. This is how he told us to relate to one another. He said, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. And then he said these words, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, right? In other words, he's giving us a doctrine of the church. He's telling us how the saints relate to each other within the local body of Christ. I really pity Christians who are running around out there who are not connected to a local body. How do you take any of these commandments of God and exercise them? Be of the same mind toward one another. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place to wrath. And then he goes on to contend that wrath is God's sole prerogative and that God himself has put agencies in place to protect society from indiscriminate vigilanteism. You know what vigilanteism is? You know what a vigilante is? Does everyone know? Why, well, y'all watched Death, Death Wish with... Uh, Charles Bronson, the great vigilante series of what, the 80s? Was it the 80s? <clears throat> Vigilanteism is when you take the law into your own hands. All right? It's lawless retribution between the grieved parties. Now, I want you to know, this is not, in every way, this is not new teaching. Some of it exists in the Old Testament, Testament but in some ways it is new teaching, and I want to talk about those things Today, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 34, that you remember Jacob, right? Israel, his name, God changed his name to Israel. He had 12 sons, therefore 12 tribes emerged from the 12 sons. But did you forget he had a daughter? Remember Dinah? You remember someone was in the kitchen with her? 
Yeah, Dinah. So <clears throat> Dinah was raped. Do you remember this? She was raped by a member of another tribe. Right? Now that man that did that deserved justice. There was no real prevailing law in the land. So what happened? Well, the 12 brothers got together, mostly Simeon and Levi. If you remember, go back to chapter 34, Genesis, verses 1 through 31, I believe. And they took it into their own hands. So what did they do? They very cleverly went out to the, I think it was the Hivites. Does that sound right? The Hivites. I should have reread it. but um, And they made friends with them. And they said, you can be part of our tribe. All you have to do is what? Be circumcised. So they circumcised all the males of the tribe. Now, if you were circumcised, you were probably this big. And you don't remember it. But when you circumcise grown males, it takes a while to get over that. And there's great pain and anguish, right? That's a real commitment. So while they were recovering from their circumcision, the 12 tribesmen wiped them out because of what they did to Dinah. And the Lord didn't think that was a good thing. All right? They took vengeance. The, in other words, the... the um, the remedy for the crime was far, far worse than the crime itself, even though the crime was a heinous crime. That's vigilanteism. And we learned all the way back in Genesis that man doesn't have that prerogative. We don't do that. So that's not new. So believers ought not to take part in lawlessness of any kind and to ensure against abuses of individuals, God has put a mediator in place, namely laws and lawmakers, and courts, and judges to ensure some measure of sanity in serving up justice between people of a society. And it's only right <clears throat> that you find someone who is objective. In other words, someone who's not personally and emotionally connected to the crime. Right? And in our legal system, if you're personally and emotionally connected to the crime, you recuse yourself and say, I'm not a fit, objective judge in this matter. And someone else comes in. That's how the system works, or is supposed to work. And I would say I have confidence that it generally works that way. So having offered the saints this meaningful treatise on interpersonal relationships, it's not illogical to proceed to the believer's relationship with the state, right? With government. Now, Paul lived in Roman times. They knew about government. The Romans were the great civil government um, empire of all history. They had a very effective system of laws and courts and governments. And they were very fair, and they were... Um, really very wise, going way back into classical Greek understanding of such things. Um, and Paul knows that, and Paul was a Roman citizen, which I'm going to get into. But uh, taken as a whole, the passage is about personal interrelations. Um, that, and so he moves quite smoothly from that into a passage about existing laws and governments, it seems to me. Um, so the abrupt pronouncement that governments, presumably in all of their forms, are not outside the sovereign will of Almighty God, I think is obvious here. Governments are in the hand of God. 
They are, in fact, his creation. God created government, friends. So I have to tell you this. It hurts me to do it. Government is good. Did you know government is good? It is. You wouldn't want to be in a society without it. And I see lawlessness now. I've been around lately the last few years. I visited a lot of cities. A lot of lawlessness. Not a good thing. You know, it was amazing. I was reading the commentaries of uh, Lloyd-Jones and the particular... When he got to this particular place, I think it was in 1963, and he talked about an unbelievable concept that no one would, of course, ever think about because it's so insane if we tried to have a society without police. If we abolished or defunded our police systems, nobody, of course, would ever do such a thing. It's so far-fetched, right? And he actually said it, and I marked it down in there, and I wanted to note that at one time... We were far saner as a world than we are today because people actually query that as an option to make things better. Friends, the thing about government that you're going to have to understand as we go through this is we know there are corruptions. We know there are problems, but by and large, it is a gift of God and it does work. It does work. So it's God's creation. And it's, in fact, divinely placed (coughs) within human society for the good of man. Government is here for the good of man. We may rightly say with Paul that government and governors and law enforcement personnel are a gift to God to the greater society of man. Recently, I was invited to the sheriff's uh, prayer meeting. And there's another one, I think, Friday, right? Um, and Dan Kroos, who you all know who's preached here, he asked me to give a prayer, and I thought I would begin like this. And so I was the, the second one to get up and pray, after our friend Paul Jaley. And what I did was I said, you hear us as ministers speak about calling. You know what I mean? We speak about calling. We, we say that we're called to the office of preaching. And people have a different view of what the calling entails. Some hear a voice from God, I guess. I, I didn't get that. But some, it's sort of an inner compulsion, a calling, right? Whatever it might be, we feel that outside ourselves, forces got together to put us in a place of speaking because it was a, just a desire to proclaim God's word. So we talk about our calling. Well, I assured the law enforcement people, and of course the room was filled with them, that they also have a calling from God. And there it is. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists God. And then it goes on. He is God's minister. You don't really think that when you get pulled over on the highway. Oh, here comes one of those ministers. He's going to Bible thump me. You don't think of it that way. He is God's minister to keep the highway safe. He's God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. And I won't get into it much this morning, but the sword means capital punishment. All right? So we will discuss some of these things as we go through this in the series. But that's a little uh, preview trailer for you. Um. 
a number of things. I've often said to you that prosperity is of no value without peace. Think about that historically, right? The richest man in Gaza right now is not a happy fellow, is he? And I, I maybe shouldn't use that as a live example right now. Same with Ukraine, these hot spots in the world. Without peace, your prosperity, the things you've worked all your life for, are really not of much value. And God knew that. So he put an agency in the world to ensure peace to the extent that a world full of sinners can procure peace for themselves. Prosperity without peace is really useless, friends. It's useless to have a home and a family and a place in society's economy if there's no reasonable expectation of p- that peace will prevail in our lives from one moment to the next. Right? And it's these government institutions that are, think about this, lovingly put in place by God for our safety and enjoyment of our days. It's a horrible thing to live in fear of constant attack or retribution. Have you ever known anybody, let's say a a woman, who has been attacked by a man or violently dealt with and maybe raped, right, like we just spoke of, and the man was caught and he was put into prison, and she was finally some measure of peace, although those kinds of memories are very severe and they're troublesome and they're nagging and they tend to come up from time to time. And then she finds out only a couple of years later that he's getting out on parole. Now, you've heard about these stories. She suddenly can't live in peace anymore because she knows that she can't have moment-by-moment protection from this guy who has it in for her, and he's made it known. I don't know. You've heard these stories, right? Um, That's how we would all live if God hadn't been gracious enough to give us organized governments and law enforcement. And that's the point, I think, that Paul is driving home here. It's a horrible thing to live in fear of constant attack and retribution. It's a good thing, friends. It's a godly thing to be able to work out our days in peace and to have a reasonable expectation that there are powers that be that will protect us as we sleep, as we work, as we walk about among other citizens in our societies, friends, as we take the subway. The subways of the cities aren't safe anymore. It used to just be the way people went about their business. You never gave it a second thought. No, you don't want to live without law and law enforcement. It's a gift of God. So with regard to sovereignty, we may recall the Lord's answer to Pilate. Jesus said this very thing to Pontius Pilate. Pilate mistakenly said to Jesus, Do you not know I have power to crucify you? Well, actually, he wasn't mistaken. He was right. He had power to crucify you, but Jesus went right to the source. He said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. So he said the same thing. So in that sense, it's not new teaching. It's New Testament teaching, right? So take these words of Jesus to mean that prevailing systems of governance, even the Roman civil government and its governors, are in place by the will of God. 
It's a matter of sovereignty that God has revealed throughout the scriptures. You've heard it said, the proverb, something to the effect that the king's heart is in the hand of God and he turns it wherever he will, right? We'll find as we go through this passage in the coming weeks that though adherence to human law and government is not absolute, there are exceptions that Christians must take from time to time. And that scripture provides examples and exceptions to the rule that respect for existing legal systems is the rule, even for Christians. It didn't go away when you got saved. You need to obey, right? Even though Paul said, you don't need the law because the Christian is a law unto himself. He, didn't, he wasn't talking about these agencies, right? So the apostle is contending that a good Christian is a good citizen, right? <clears throat> And even though he may be a citizen of another kingdom, right? We like to say that, right? This isn't my home. I'm just passing through, right? For now, his born-again status does not absolve him from certain immutable earthly relationships, and the state is one of them. We're stuck under the state. We're stuck with taxes, all right? And I'm certain that at that time, as in our time, there were and are those voices among our own who are in a state of unlawful revolution against the things that God has put in our midst for our own safety and well-being. You may have noticed from the teachings of Christ that there is no marriage in heaven. Did you notice that? In the kingdom, there's no marriage. But you're still stuck with her down here. That didn't change. I'm just kidding. We all love our wives in this church. Amen. We'll not always live alongside sinners of unbelievers, but for now we do. If you're married here, you won't be married in heaven, but you've got to wait that long for that connection to happen, right? And so the apostle is wise to point out that a certain secular authority exists under whom we too must submit ourselves. I would point also to another possible reason for Paul's seeming digression from one subject to another. Maybe you hadn't thought of this, maybe you had. And that is that though the churches of that time were primarily made up of Gentiles, there were a lot of Jews in the churches, right? And Jews had a very specific idea of government, didn't they? Very specific idea of government. I'd noted many times that the scriptures of Paul's time were the Old Testament scriptures. In other words, when Paul wrote this, the only... The only writings that were able to be called the scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures. And the Jews lived by those. And the Jews lived for at least the times that they were a free society and not under captivity to a pagan aggressor. They lived as a theocracy, didn't they? They lived by the laws of God in their judicial government. So they were under, or actually, let me back up here. Um, The Jews took a decidedly different approach to law and government than do powers that be in the new covenant, in the church. Jews were notoriously bad citizens. Not when they were um, sovereign, not when they had hegemony, that means rule over Israel, but when they were overtaken as punishment by other 
nations, they were notoriously bad citizens because they believed it was wrong to obey those governments. Now we know that very enlightened Jews did not think that way. And I'll talk about this as we go through it. We know that Daniel worked for government. Two different empires. He worked for Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. He worked for Darius in Persia, right? Even though the whole empire had changed hands from one conqueror to another, Daniel worked for both pagan governments. Didn't seem to have any complaint about it. Did the best he could. Nehemiah did the same thing, right? So they were under rule by pagan government from time to time. Um, First of all, through their Assyrian occupiers, they conquered northern Israel, not Judea, right? Not in the south. Then, of course, Nebuchadnezzar came in, the Babylonian armies, and they took the whole thing. Then the Medo-Persians conquered them, the Greeks them, and in Paul's time, the Romans. Books of the Bible that were written during these periods of exile and captivity include Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Ezekiel, Daniel, Haggai, Ezra, Nehemiah, Zechariah, Malachi. These were all written while Israel was under the power of other nations, pagan nations. And that brought the Jews to the intertestamental period under the Greek Empire. That's when Malachi was the last word, and we didn't hear again from God till Matthew wrote, right? And that 450 or so years in there, a couple of more empires rose and fell. The Greek Empire rose and fell. The Roman Empire took them down, right? So Jews thought it was their prerogative to resist governing authorities that were imposed on them from without. So Paul had to tell them, that's all in the past now. The church is not Israel. And we live under whichever government we happen to be born again into. So Jews were still zealous resistors in that intertestamental period. You've heard of the Maccabees, right? The Maccabees? Um, there's even a book, First and Second Maccabees, which were, in, were included in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. The Reformers took those out thinking they weren't inspired. That doesn't mean they're not accurate historical documents. They are. Um, and the Maccabees were this dynasty of resistors over their Syrian overlords. That was the remnants of uh, Alexander's army. So the Maccabees were a zealous dynasty of anti-Seleucid militias. For a short interval in intertestamental uh, history, and they overcame the government of their Greek occupiers and became once again a self governing nation of Jews. So they successfully threw off the chains of their government and went back to being Jews under God's laws and the scriptures. So from Deuteronomy, you, 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 you may read this from um, chapter 17. Where God says to Israel, you shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. That expired in in the New Testament era. You will almost always have a foreign governor over you now. Paul is teaching here that it's not necessary to resist the secular regime of the Roman period. 
He's telling the Jews, you don't have to do that anymore. And he points out what his fellow Jews might not have surmised, that God is sovereign and that the powers that be are sovereignly appointed by him. God put these guys in power. Paul's teaching is to inform the church that they are not the same people as the people of God of old. They're different people. They are an integrated people from every tribe and nation. They are not required to establish their self-rule or construct their own earthly governments. Rather, we should recall what Paul stressed in the previous chapter where we read, if it is possible, so long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In other words, when you get saved, that doesn't make you a revolutionary against ungodly pagan governments. We submit to them. So the teaching was kind of a big deal if you were Jewish, right? I mean, the, the Ephesians and the Romans that got saved, well, they were already Romans. They were already situated under their governments. They didn't have a particular problem with this, but the Jews grew up believing that a foreigner ruling over you was against the will of God, and Paul is telling them, giving them some new information here. Not so anymore. So verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And so Paul doubles down on the directive to fall in line with existing law and civil authority. The people of God are no longer called to overthrow their secular kingdoms, like the Maccabees did a couple of hundred years before Christ. Instead, Paul tells us we are engaged in a different war. And so he wrote to the Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of the age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's where our battle is. The believer is to come to the understanding that corruptions in God-given governments come from the darkness that exists in the sinful hearts of men. The forces of spiritual wickedness are the underlying causes of corruption that we see daily in the exercise of the law and government in our time, and certainly we see it now. It seems to me there are great corruptions in government. Um, But friends, as long as there were people in government, there were corruptions in government. And I'm not sure we're a special time in that regard. We may be coming to a time when such things are unparalleled in human existence. Friends, God made a perfect paradise. It was Adam and Eve that messed it up, right? Right? It was a man who corrupted the perfect paradise. That didn't make the paradise less perfect the way it was conceived, right? God devised institutions of government, and there too it was men who corrupted those, right? So it seems evident to me that the apostle is treating the false notions spread by some uninformed believers. Friends, you may know people like this today that we shouldn't pay taxes. That goes to evil stuff. Some uninformed believers go 
against this teaching, and really in all of its aspects. Now, a bunch of questions should be arising in your mind right now, which I, I do want to get into over the weeks, not today. But one big question would be, well, Pastor, how did the United States get here? Did anyone think of that as we were going through this? Someone had to overthrow a government. But uninformed believers from our new life in Christ, our new citizenship in heaven, somehow, they believe, exempts us from lawful custom or from any civil government in the earth. Um, Christians are not to develop their own subcultures that presume exemption from prevailing societies in which they find themselves. I'm thinking of groups like the Amish. Now, the Amish are pretty innocuous. They're not causing a lot of problems or anything. But that really is a false conception of government, that you just sort of cloister yourselves over there in a little group, and you're not part of the world into which you were saved out of, right? Lloyd-Jones touches on this concept in his commentary. He says, we are all in human relationships. We cannot contract out of them. We do not become monks or hermits. That was the Catholic solution to the problem. The world was too evil. We had to create our own little world where we go over there and we can be nice. And he goes on, he goes, that was the fatal mistake of the Roman Catholics who started the whole notion. Now we live, now, he says, no, we still live our lives in the world, so how do we do it becomes the question. And Paul's telling us the beginning here. It's Romans 13 that provides the basis to answering that question. There were other more troublesome groups in church history. Maybe you've heard of the Anabaptists in, um, in Germany in the time of the uh, Reformation. Anyone? Thomas Munzer? Thomas Munzer. Um, he was a contemporary of Luther. They agreed on basic doctrine, but when it came to this notion of government, he wouldn't live under the government uh, of the times, which was the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, good luck with that. But, um, so he took an extreme position on this very point and led a group of peasants in insurrection against the prevailing rulers of the day. It was his poor theology on this point that led to the spiritual excesses that were his downfall and the downfall of the entire Anabaptist movement of that era, where he could have been a great doctrinal and spiritual ally of the reformers, his views of secular law and civil authority marginalized him to the point of heresy on this point, right? And the total destruction of his movement, not to mention great loss of life for his followers. They were actually massacred. In doing so, he incurred the wrath of both the Roman Catholic Church and the major reform movements of the day. Men like Luther and Calvin were vehemently against this. The Munzer group came face to face with the warning of Romans 13, 2 to 4. He found that the powers that be are appointed by God. He found that rulers are a terror to those who do evil. He found that the law enforcer does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil, even if the evil guy, in this case, is the Christian. Verse 3, for rulers are a terror to good works. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Rulers are not a terror to good works. I knew that didn't sound right. <laughs> it's my dyslexia from childhood. It never went away. Karen has to watch me when I tip 
Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. Now, he's saying this blanketly across the board, which is really kind of amazing as a Christian to think he's saying, obey government in all of its forms. But thus far, in the treatment, is exactly what he's saying. What's a very sad thing in our time is that our populace has come so far away from the founding principles of our government that they've become dangerously unaware of the balance between lawful restrictions and human rights as they're postulated in our founding documents. Friends, we have rights, and guess what? So did Paul. But you don't have a right if you don't know what it is. But if it's legal, you're standing under the banner of the sovereign God. And Paul did that, and I'll give some examples of it. It's incumbent upon the believer to be cognizant of his rights under law, for ignorance of good and evil create a multitude of problems. Right? It's good for us to know how far we can go when somebody's knocking at the door telling us we're breaking the law and we're saying, no, I'm quite sure I have a right to do what I I do and have what I have in my gun closet. To be frank, we have an inviolable First Amendment, first of all. It provides for us the right to speak our minds, whether our thoughts are received and accepted by the authority or not. We're finding that's being abridged in the public, in the public, uh, mar- uh, the public square, the table of ideas, ideas. We have the right to print our ideas, to publish them into the world. Freedom of the press. We have freedom to assemble. We can be here. You can't tell us that we can't. But it was tried, wasn't it? We have the freedom to exercise our religion, and when such things are given up by an ignorant majority motivated by fear, the future of those rights suffers under the weight of precedent. In other words, we taught them before we can break up their assemblies, and we're going to do it again. Praise God for those who fought back because we have rights and they prevailed. Why? Because we have rights and we have a legal system that actually works. This is a lesson that Paul taught us very well in his example as a Roman citizen, well aware of the limits of his arrest and incarceration. You remember, he's preaching the gospel in Philippi. They grab him off the street because... A local idol maker got mad because he cast a demon out of a fortune teller slave girl who was now of no um, financial use to her owner because she couldn't tell fortunes anymore. Apparently she could really do it. So Paul does all that. So what do they do? They arrest him and they flog him. Friends, Paul knew you're going to be in trouble. You can't flog a Roman citizen. Right? And so... He demanded his one phone call, and the whole thing fell apart. No, actually, so what happens? Uh, we, we read this from, uh, from the book of Acts. Paul says, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans. You couldn't beat them till they were condemned, till they were tried. Then you could beat them, right? You couldn't beat them if they didn't do anything wrong, and just because you said they did it wrong didn't make it wrong. Right? And he said, they've thrown us into prison, and now they're trying to put us out secretly. No, 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 he said. 
Let them come themselves and get us out. And then listen to what we read. Paul turns the tables on them. Why? He does it legally under the law. The officers told these words to the magistrate, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. You can't just toss around a Roman citizen, and you can't just toss around an American citizen either. We have laws. So even though there's corruptions, there are good things in the laws that are provided. And so we read this. Then they pleaded, these, um, these cops, these soldiers, they pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. Please go away and don't get us in any trouble with the captain. So they went out from the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. <clears throat> Remember, Paul went before his Roman governor, Agrippa. Remember King Agrippa? He was, uh, from Acts 26, uh, Paul was heard. He was believed by the king, who was the judge in this case. And he would have been set free. But we read Agrippa's words on the subject. And so Luke writes, Then Agrippa said to Festus, that's the governor and the king, and they're talking about the, the Paul incident. He said, this man might have been set free if he'd not appealed to Caesar. In other words, what? It's legal to preach the gospel, even in Rome. And Paul knew it. They just didn't like what he did. Keep in mind that both the religious and secular authorities, Pilate and Herod Antipas, in the trial of Jesus, declared him innocent and agreed to let him go. Did you remember that? It was only what? When he was tried on the internet. No, the mob, the public, the public wanted Jesus crucified. They turned it over to the mob, remember? The whole Barabbas thing. Who do you want, this man or this man? Sadly, though, that was a Jewish custom imposed on them. It was the trial by mob that was his undoing. Friends, the mob is not our friend. Not to mention the personal weakness of the authorities when put under political pressure. They should have held their ground, but we know sovereignly Jesus had to go to the cross. So in other words, you can see that God uses strong rulers and weak rulers to bring about his purposes, right? And that's as beautiful a case in point as we can probably find. There are a number of issues on this passage that bear great relevance for the Christians in our time. And the word of God has given us the answers that we seek if we will mine them effectively from the annals of scripture, which we will. So what is the relationship of the church and the state? You know, the churches, in my opinion, have got it wrong up until the Baptist movement, which was the independent movement. The church has got it wrong. In Calvin's Geneva, the state and the church were one. In Luther's Germany, the state and the church were one. Luther just wanted to change which church, which church was connected with the state, the Lutheran or the Roman. The same was true in the Anglican experiment in England. The church and the state were one. Henry uh, VIII, the king, was the head of the church. That was, a, that was a, a wrong, imbalanced relationship of the state and the church. And the Bible is very effective in sorting these things out. So what is the relationship of the church and the state? We'll look at that over the weeks to come. Are there exceptions to submitting to government decrees? I hope some come up in your mind. 
some examples in the scriptures. Is capital punishment ordained by God? Right? Let me give you a hint. Not for all the things that capital punishment is used for in some countries. Capital punishment is for murder. Right? I believe that all these questions can be answered with careful analysis of this as well as other pertinent passages on the subject of the believer's responsibility to the secular rulers of the day. We'll spend some time here and unravel some of these complexities in the weeks to come. Father, we praise you this day in Jesus' name for our gathering. I pray that our minds have been opened to some of these teachings of your beloved apostle, O Lord that they might benefit us, that we might have a stronger walk in Christ and a more secure relationship with the, with the agencies around us that by your beneficence you have put in place for our, for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.